One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Dr. Paul Harvey, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you, Brad. Good to be here. Uh, that's awesome. Look, and I feel as though it's a, it's a long, long time coming. I feel as though we've been swimming in parallel probably for a while, Paul, as a follow podcaster, as well as a, trying to save the planet from the scourge of plastic pollution as well. How are you? I'm good. I've been busy, but I think you've probably been at the podcasting game a little bit longer than I have. I only started mid last year. Yeah. It's good fun. I quite enjoy it. I get to speak to some uh, really cool people such as, as yourself on, on your show now. <laughs> I'm keen to know your perspective from a, a podcasting perspective, but I, I find it's almost like a scam. It's almost like a, a cheat to talk to really cool people and get almost like a free education about uh, how to save the planet. It's, it's a very inspiring as well. I sometimes feel that. And the fact that I can sit in my office <laughs> comfortably and essentially travel three quarters of the way across the world and, and learn from somebody in a far-flung remote location about what's important to them and the challenges that they're facing. Yeah, I agree. It feels a bit like a cheat sometimes, doesn't it? Where are you calling from, Paul? Is it Goulburn? So that's right. I am currently in Goulburn. I was in Sydney, used to be in Sydney, born and bred Sydney and been there all my life, but decided that I would follow my partner with her career progression, switched it up to live a life in Goulburn. Just to, in case the Goulburn Tourism Board uh, dial into this show, and I'm sure they're big fans, how would you promote the amazing uh, destination that is Goulburn? We've got the big merino. What more do I need to say? <laughs> the big merino. Oh, my Lord. Let's dive into the backstory that is Dr. Paul Harvey. So first up, you're, you're obviously a doctor. What was your PhD in? I studied in environmental chemistry. Now, Many people are probably thinking, what's environmental chemistry? Well, it's a lot of things and a whole lot of confusion all at the same time. But what I was actually working on primarily was trying to figure out where pollution events are coming from and using techniques, lab techniques and analytical techniques that are more typically used for geochemists to try and pinpoint the sources of pollution. And this could be water pollution, it could be mine pollution, anything and everything in the pollution space. And so my thesis was all about developing these new tools and techniques, which were sort of cutting edge when I published the thesis, but not so much now. They've, the world of science progresses mm -hmm. fairly fast in this space. And so those tools were quite useful in actually being able to identify, yes, this abattoir, for example, is creating a major pollution event in a local creek and local stream, which is then feeding into a major waterway and a protected waterway at that. Around mine sites, trying to really clearly show that the dust that kids and, and young families are being exposed to is in fact 
from a smelter environment and not uh, a naturally occurring phenomenon in that particular region. So different, really big, large-scale projects like that that have a substantial human health outcome and, and impact. God, you would have been handed. No, I was approached by, I think it was the Queensland Animal Liberation or, or some sort of NGO around that. Were like, we're pretty sure there's this abattoir, and I won't say where, but say southeast Queensland, that was, uh, we're pretty sure it's heavily polluting a waterway, but we don't know how to prove it. I would have been handed and have you in the, my back pocket back in those days, Paul, and going, oh, you could have contacted Paul. But out of interest, how, how would someone prove that, a, for example, an abattoir was polluting their waterway? One of the studies that I worked on, as a chicken abattoir. Chickens have a particular chemical that's used, or back then, used in food production in order to essentially keep them healthy in their cages. And that has an arsenic component to it. And you can trace the different types of arsenic. There's multiple types of arsenic and they're not all the same. And there's what we call the inorganic and the organic species of arsenic. And you can actually pick out an organic species of arsenic that gets into the water or gets into the soil that has been fed to these chickens, kind of like an antibiotic sort of a thing, to keep them healthy. And so we could actually trace that in the wastewater discharge and then downstream. So that was one of the ways. We were also using, you might have heard of eDNA, environmental DNA, where you take a sample of the water and you you screen it and you identify species that might be in that region. It's quite common at the moment in regard to platypus. We were actually doing that before that whole scene took off and we were collecting water samples from downstream and upstream to create a control of this facility and being able to detect not only poultry DNA in the water, specifically chicken DNA, but also we were able to detect a specific antibiotic resistance gene known to be found in battery hens as a result of the antibiotics that they get fed during their growth phases. And so that with a, a bunch of the more traditional environmental monitoring data like your turbidity, your nutrient loading and so on, really made it indisputable that this facility was discharging uh, against the operating license for a start, but in a way that is detrimental to the receiving environment. That is cool. I'm sure the uh, vegan warriors of the world would love to uh, get you on their books, have you sort of proved <laughs> how much the animal agriculture industry is polluting the planet. But we're not here to talk about that today. We are <laughs> That's here. another topic. <laughs> <laughs> we are here to talk about plastic. And, and, and you've read a book, and I have it in my hot little hand. I've just finished reading it. It's sat on my bookshelf for a long time, The Plasticology Project. Congratulations. But before we get into the book... How did you become interested in plastic pollution? So, you've got this environmental chemistry PhD, you could probably charge a fortune for you know doing a whole bunch of environmental analyses and doing expert witness cases forever, but you took a particular interest in plastic pollution. How did this come about? It's actually an interesting journey. As an environmental chemist and somebody who is so in tune with environmental pollution and what's going on around the world, plastic was actually one of those environmental pollutants that was never particularly on my radar until a point in time. It was always something that was there, of course, and you'd go to the beach or you'd go to a river or or even out into a a rural area and you would see plastic everywhere. But it never really stuck in my brain that this is just as problematic as almost every other pollutant that we're we're dealing with or that I I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And then I was traveling overseas. I was in Africa, actually. And this was the first point where it started to really tickle my brain and be like, hey, hang on, this, there's something not quite right here. And that was when 
I was uh, traveling on the road and there's this waste dump on the side of the road. And as I now know, and, and many people do now know, waste dumps um, in certain parts of the world tend to get set on fire um, for lack of much else to do with it. And this particular one was on fire and there's this thick black belching smoke coming off it. I drove past it, got a face full of it and lungs full of it. And then as I look back in the rear view mirror, I could see these these young kids and these young adults standing on top of this pile of burning rubbish, picking through it to try and find what was left of anything salvageable for them to probably try and sell in a market. Meanwhile, inhaling all of this filthy black smoke. That was the first time I sort of started to think that, well, if the chemicals that I'm testing for from smelters or abattoirs or other industrial facilities are in these materials, then why is this not as problematic as those other sources of pollution? And then I was traveling again in the UK. I was in a small town called Aberystwyth in Wales. That part of the Welsh coastline is rugged and wild, and you get these belting storms almost day after day. The, the tides are enormous. The waves are just amazing. It's a, it's a surprise that Everest with the town is still there and has been there as long as it is. It's just incredible the way that the ocean behaves there. And it was one day after the storm sort of finally settled down, I could get out there on the beach and look around. And in the rocks, everywhere you, you went, there was just this rubbish, plastic rubbish everywhere, chip packets, bottles, chocolate wrappers, what have you. Netting, that was another thing that was just everywhere, netting. And then balloons, why are there balloons washing up on the beach? And then there was this one particular package that was there, and it was from France, and it was 1984 or something like this. This product was made, and it had finally washed up onto the beach and settled. And I just thought, wow, this is an enormous problem and one that really needs a bit more attention. And of course, then I was hooked. I really started to go, what do we know about plastic out there? What research is there? And where can I fit into this whole, the whole spectrum of the problem? I started really looking into plastic in, in 2018, and that's when I started to write the book. When I started to look back then at, at plastic pollution as a problem, we had a sense of what the issues were but nothing like what we know today. The knowledge that we have about plastic in and of itself, that, that large macro-scale plastic being problematic all the way through the microplastics to the nanoplastics to then the chemical phases of plastic, they just overshadow what we knew back then. And it worried me back then about some of the, the things that we now know about today. And I just think, wow, what are we doing to the planet that we live in? What are we doing to ourselves? It's just crazy how much of this material is out there, the impact that it's having, what we know about, but also what we don't know about. And that, that to me, is what kind of pushes me along and keeps me wanting to keep keep working in this space and learning more and, and, and speaking to other people. What always amazes me is that the fact that this material in plastic has been around for uh, decades, what since, I don't know, for the 40s or 50s, we're still trying to work out the potential health implications of its use. Probably only a couple of years ago, there was that National Geographic article around, oh, there's plastic in our poop. And all of a sudden, oh, no, it's, there's plastic in our all our organs. Oh, there's plastic in the placenta of unborn babies. It's not good news. 
no one's turning around and saying, actually, we've looked at this plastic problem a bit, uh, a bit further. And you know what? There's nothing to worry about. It's all good. It's, it seems there's a big growing body of awareness around cheese. This is, this stuff isn't looking too positive in any way, shape or form. But meanwhile, we're producing plastic in exponentially increasing amounts. It reminds me in many ways of some of the, the key environmental pollutants that we've seen over the years. Lead, asbestos. We're now in, in many ways with climate change, the chemicals that we release into the atmosphere, same idea with that, the CFCs, all of these things, we know to an extent they're problematic. We have this history of knowing that there's a potential problem, potential concern with these things, but being very slow to act and actually get a move on with making the transition. I mean, we've known for the better part of 100 years, if not more, about the impacts of lead on the human body. And yet there is still lead out there in the world that is being used. It's still in some areas in fuel. There's only a very few places where it's still still permitted for use in fuel, but there are still some applications where it's still used in fuel. And you just think, we know what the issues are here, and yet we still allow it to happen. And it's the same with plastic in many ways. We know the issues with plastic, we know how problematic it is and the damage that it uh, is is doing not only to marine life, uh, but all other animals on the planet. And yet here we are, we're still going at this snail's pace in terms of what are we doing to fix the problem? It just astounds me that we're not waking up and being like, well, we really need to get on with doing something about this now because if we don't, history tells us we're going to have an even bigger problem in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, there's almost a playbook, isn't there? Whether you mentioned lead, asbestos, you can look at DDT, CFCs, PFAS, and obviously plastic. It's well, the industries behind these various chemicals or products have a, a very strong vested interest in, in producing it. And there's no accountability, at least initially. Obviously, there's been some more recent accountability around PFAS in particular. And we're talking multi-billion dollar uh, lawsuits in America, whereas plastic that produces have to date uh, avoided potential financial implications associated with the production and potential impacts. But yeah, there's a playbook. Keep producing it. I guess feather the nests of regulators and governments to keep the status quo. Provide almost piecemeal or uh, wishy-washy solutions or greenwashing of, of what you're doing to potentially address the problem, whether you're a Coca-Cola you know, sponsoring a, uh, an innovation to do a token cleanup or, or some other advocacy around thinking that we can recycle the way out of this issue. What I find the most frustrating is there's guys like you and there's scientists uh, doing a whole bunch of research, et cetera, around the world, advocating for change, basically putting their hand in their own pocket and trying to raise awareness and um, you know come up with solutions and drive change. But meanwhile, the plastic producers just keep on making a whole bunch of cash and becoming increasingly more powerful. There's this thing that I often think about, the enormous global economy that surrounds plastic. We think the plastic problem is sort of you get to the supermarket and things are wrapped in plastic and then you get it home and you think, oh, what do I do with it now? Does it go to landfill? Is there a recycling solution for it? Or is there there's some other thing that I can use with this plastic? But there's actually an enormous international trade in plastic and there's a huge global economy based around plastic that says to me that the plastic problem isn't going to go anywhere in any great hurry because there's a financial 
reason for it not to go anywhere. The financial gain, the corporate profit that's associated with keeping that industry alive means it's going to be incredibly difficult to stop it from happening. We often talk about plastic and sort of use an umbrella term that all and, and sort of box it all into one that all plastics are uh, bad and, and, and shouldn't be around. I'm very much of the opinion that there are applications of plastic in our lives and in the world, the modern world, that are appropriate because it's a material that is absolutely 100% fit for that purpose and we don't have anything else uh, currently available for that. But it's these silly nonsense uses of plastic that are getting us into trouble and that are creating this surplus burden in our supply chains and in our waste sector and subsequently in the environment that really need our attention. We don't need the sachet economy is one of the biggest problems that colleagues that I speak to in Southeast Asia or Africa are up against. Everything is in portion controlled sachets. And what happens with the sachet? It's made of plastic. What happens with that when it's finished being used? Goes into a waste dump, gets thrown into a river, wherever somewhere away is going to be that it doesn't have to be a burden anymore. That's really, to me, the, the biggest nonsense use of plastic that there possibly is. Plastic is an important resource. It's an incredibly valuable resource. But like fossil fuels, it's finite. We actually do need fossil fuels for things. There are applications where oil extracted from the ground is important. It's needed, but we're wasting these resources. It's a very selfish approach that we humans are taking at the moment in this comfortable modern world that we live in. We've got everything at our fingertips and we just go, 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 go. No thought really for the future or what impact we're having by yeah, doing yeah, what we're sure. doing. Yeah, for sure. Not all plastic's bad. We can sense the frustration, but a lot of people get frustrated about a lot of things. But you're one guy that said, I'm going to do something about it. And it seems like a big part of your action is around the Plasticology Project. Paul, what the hell is the Plasticology Project? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is the title of the book and actually my publishing coach, came up with that name. I can't actually take ownership <laughs> of that name. And it was a long conversation that was had. The The working title that I had for the book was very creatively because I am a scientist of the plastic book. <laughs> and we were sitting around one day and uh, yeah, the publishing coach uh, sort of said, you know, that's a bit of a bland title. I think we should come up with something something a bit better. And so he went away and I came up with a half a dozen equally bland titles. <laughs> and then there was this one that stood out on the list from, from her side. And I said, Ooh, where did you come up with that? And, oh, you know, I just, I just, just came up with it and my, my researching my little bits and pieces. And so we've gone from the plastic book to the plasticology. That's pretty cool. And then I thought, you know what? It needs something else on there. And that's when it became the plasticology project. It's really all about. First and foremost, the book is a, a, a bit of a, a compilation of all of the scientific knowledge and awareness that we had at the time of publishing. Mm. And, you know, again, going back to that whole notion of science moves very quickly, when the book was published, there were some key scientific studies that I'd actually talked about that almost within a month or two after the publication date, they had become superseded. The knowledge that we wow. uh, were talking about as being possible potential maybe have become an actual fact. We do know this yeah. for certain. Here is the data that shows it. 
that is just mind-blowing and incredible. And that's sort of where the book started off. And it was all about not only a, a place to consolidate my thoughts and the research and, and what we knew at the time, but it was also to get people a little bit motivated and start thinking about plastic pollution as a global problem, but also something that, well, yes, it does seem like an enormous insurmountable task to fix many of the plastic problems that we have. It's actually not as big of a problem as we might initially think. And again, drawing from some of those examples from history of other environmental pollutants where we might have thought, geez, this is way too big. We're never going to solve this. Well, the hole in the ozone layer is almost fully repaired, if not has mm, reached a yeah. state where it's considered to be repaired. And now, if you were to say to somebody two decades ago that if we stop CFCs now, we can repair the ozone hole, they'd, they'd probably think well, maybe not so much. But look, History has, has showed us that that can be done with fairly minimal effort from the everyday consumer, right? Yeah. A few changes here, a regulated approach out of using of the, you know, those chemicals has resulted in a positive environmental outcome. And it's the same with, with plastic, really. If we all do a little bit and the regulatory space is set correctly, we can actually get ourselves out of that problem. In the meantime, we have to really be looking at what things are people doing around the world in their own little space to fix the problem and, and face the challenge. They're the small little pockets of incredibly great work that are going to either come up with an alternative to plastic, a solution to processing plastic waste, or just simply repair the environment that's heavily degraded by plastic or other waste for that matter because we hyper-focus ourselves on plastic a lot of the time when we should actually be considering the waste spectrum much more broadly because there's other parts to it as well. That's really what the Plasticology Project is all about is raising awareness, creating education, creating this global community and this global conversation about, yes, of course, the problem that's there. Let's get beyond that. Let's get to the solution. Let's get to the fixing it and hear from those remarkable people that are doing so, so, so very much to fix the problem in the face of limited budgets, hardly any resources, challenging climates, difficult regions to get into, logistic challenge, all of those things, but they're making such an enormous change. It gets me excited. It's it's so cool <laughs> to have those conversations and be able to really you know, share their mission and be a a mouthpiece, an amplifier for what they're up to and get it out there around the world. Yeah. For me, The Plasticology Project is a book of hope. So if people aren't familiar with the book and haven't read it, it, it basically is a really good overview of the, the problem and I guess, like you said, uh, what the potential solutions can be. And they're pretty straightforward, if I'm honest. Like uh, to uh, solve a problem, you've got to understand it and that's what the book does and obviously it does provide a bit of a template for what we can do and tries to, I guess, uh, inspire a collective movement around doing something about this problem but and and you mentioned the um the ozone layer and and there are lots of stories of success like there that i mentioned the playbooks but there's also been examples where the planetary community have come together around a particular problem yeah we rec recognize there was a 
dirty great big hole in the ozone layer, which was going to cause a whole bunch of dramas. The collective community they re- did a whole bunch of analysis and went, yes, uh, CFCs coming from re- refrigerants and, and that stuff was a key problem. We're just going to progressively get rid of CFC- CFCs in in uh, refrigerations, etc. And long story short, it worked, and we're seeing a progressively diminishing hole in the ozone layer. I look at plastic and I say, yeah, it could be exactly the same thing. To solve a problem, you got to understand it. And there's a few things in this book that you like. I only found out this was even a thing about a month before I read your book, and it was plastic in soil. Now, a lot of people don't even think about this sort of stuff. And again, you can't solve a problem unless you understand it. So can you just give people a snapshot insight into the issue around plastics in soil? Because for me, this is gobsmacking. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Yes, it is one of those overlooked uh, areas of, of plastic pollution. Landfill site in the middle of semi arid Africa. Where's the, the material in the landfill going to go? But into the soil, right? It's, there's no river there. It's, it's literally just soil. So where's it going to go? It's eventually going to accumulate into the soil profile. And that's something that I was really thinking about when I was writing the book. And then I got to, got to watching some documentaries and, and other bits and pieces. And there was a, a documentary by Simon Reeve, traveled around the Mediterranean, got to this place in southern Spain. The co-presenter was looking at a soil profile and exactly that in the soil profile on the edge of this um, erosion point where there should have been a creek, but that had since washed away, you could see layers of plastic in the soil profile. And I thought that is exactly what is going to happen anywhere the plastic is deposited on the soil. Having watched that and having thought about that, I've trained my eye now to actually go out to places where there's probably going to be plastic in the soil and guess what? There's plastic in the soil and it can be on the surface. It can be right down to depth. Plastic, of course, has an extremely long lifetime. It will eventually break down. Everything will eventually break down. It just takes an extremely long time to do it. None of us are going to be around to see the plastic bottle that we decide to bury in the backyard today break down into anything that barely resembles its constituent parts. It's going to be there for generations to come. And that's one of the problems with plastic in soil is it gets stuck in the soil. It's an anaerobic oxygen poor environment. There's nothing there to help the plastic break down really. It's incredibly stable and it sits there. And then what happens? Put more soil on top, more soil on top, more soil on top. And it migrates down, if you like, and it gets trapped there even more. And I don't think still to this day we consider plastic in soil as big of a problem as we need to be. We know 
a lot about plastic in the marine environment. We know a lot about plastic in the rivers. But soil, it's something that we don't often focus our attention on. How I found out about this as an issue at all was I was at a CSIRO ending plastic waste symposium. There was just a throwaway talk around how they use plastic mulch. And I actually turned to the guy beside me and said, did I hear that right? They use plastic mulch? And yeah, they do. Like in agricultural areas, instead of, you know, mulch like wood chips or bark or whatever, to, and mulch is really important. It helps retain moisture within the, within the soil, provides organic matter generally if it's organic. But to use plastic, bits of plastic as a mulch, I just couldn't believe it. And then you go down the path of, okay, what about like wastewater sludges, for example? Like uh, when we treat uh, sewage, for example, we, we end up with, you know, a cleaner water, um, but also a sludge residue. And that sludge residue obviously contains, amongst other things, microplastics. And often that sludge residue is applied onto our agricultural areas as a soil amendment. And Obviously, the microplastics don't just magically just stay there in one piece. Long story short, they would obviously migrate eventually into the surrounding soil profile, but also into our waterways and potentially, dare I say, into our food. It doesn't make any sense. Again, I'd never even thought about this as a problem before. So to shine a light on it, it at least gets people going, hey, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Maybe we should do something else. I don't know. It's quite a rabbit hole to go down (laughs) when you do start thinking about it. And one of the things that I actually went to when writing the book was, what does the Australian standard say for soil amendments? And there's actually a provision in there that includes plastic as a solid waste or a sort of solid component of soil conditions and soil amendments. And so there's a, there's an allowable percentage or fraction of that material that can be included in that bulk matrix that then can get applied to agriculture and and various other settings. And so, there's obviously a reason for that being included and and the reason is not to give, you know, plastic a free pass into the environment. It's because, well, it's there and it's one of these things that we actually have to put a value against. Otherwise, it will just be 90% plastic and three sticks. And now if we go, we call that a soil. It's it's never going to pass. But, you know, to think that there has been that consideration somewhere in the past, but it's probably just been something really in passing where the number has been come up with because it needed to be defined but not terribly much more thought put into it. And then, yeah, you you think about how plastic is getting used extensively in agriculture as a soil, um, soil cover in, in mulch. And, and you know, the, the plastic has quite good thermal properties and it holds the heat in the soil, which allows things to grow. It holds moisture in the soil, but it's incredibly bad for the environment in, in all different ways. It's, Clearly. It's, man, it just seems like it. I, I can't believe someone thought that was even a good idea in any way, right? shape or form at any stage in society. I know. it's It just, it, again, it just blows your mind when you start thinking about these things and really diving into the extent of the problem that's around this whole this whole topic. And you just go, wow. You've got a very good understanding of the extent of the problem. So, how do we solve the plastic pollution crisis? The very, very first thing that we can all do is think about our purchasing habits. And it's easier said than done. Absolutely. And at the moment, many Australians in particular are feeling the pain. They walk into the supermarket and everything is three or four times more expensive than it was 12 months ago. 
absolutely get that. But where you can try and avoid purchasing products that are wrapped in plastic or purchase a product that is, has less plastic on it than, say, the product line next door, those simple steps uh, can go a long way in reducing the amount of plastic that ends up go, either going into the landfill or some other waste stream. For the most part, the biggest challenges that we have, particularly in Australia at the moment, are waste management challenges. And that is we don't have landfill capacity to manage all of the waste that we have at the moment. We're quickly running out of that, but we don't have alternate solutions for what to do with that waste instead of landfill. And so recycling has got itself a bit of a bad name recently, I think possibly undeservingly. Um, the recycling does have a place, um, like some types of plastic. There are other approaches as well. Change out what type of materials are being used. If you're in a, in a climate where something like a, a truly biodegradable product is viable, then maybe that's the solution there. But doing these changes to move away from plastic as a, as a resource in these types of applications helps to not only reduce your personal and your, your home household waste generation, but it also can send a message to supermarkets and manufacturers that, no, we don't want this plastic anymore. We're pretty sick and tired of it. We're not going to shop these lines anymore because there's just too much plastic that has to get dealt with. As an individual, you might think, well, what's the difference between me buying that or me not buying that? I'm just one person in a grand pool of statistics of N equals you know, 250,000 consumers. If each person changes their mindset, then we have that community effect and everybody starts to transition. One of the biggest challenges that we're, we're facing, of course, we can do these types of things in our own homes, but how do we change the global narrative, the global discourse on the, this challenge? We have the bottled water challenges that so many communities face around the world. How can we expect a community that has no other viable, fresh, clean, safe source of drinking water but plastic bottled water imported from some other place to all of a sudden say, no, I'm not going to purchase drinking water in the bottles or I'm not going to receive it from the community supplier or anything like that. We need to be thinking at the global scale about how we manage these much larger problems. And that comes down to the regulatory framework, but it also comes back in many ways to doing it because it's the right thing to do. A company shouldn't need an international treaty or a government to kick them up the butt and say, you need to change your packaging product or you need to stop producing that, that line because it's, it's nonsense. It's ridiculous. We need a, we need a different approach to it. The company should be able to look into itself and realize that the global market is changing. Consumers and their mindsets and their habits and behaviors are changing. They need to get on with making the shift themselves. And there are some really good examples of companies that are moving already in this space. But the rate of change is so slow. The commitment to making these changes is so poor that those that are doing something good really just, they get lost in the crowd. And so 
if more of these companies that are producing the material or currently reliant on plastic as a primary packaging source or or part of their market sector, or more of the companies got involved with the, the transition away from that, then we'd so much quicker get to the end point where we need to be rather than still jumping up and down and, and saying, oh, we've got this plastic pollution problem. What do we do about it? We've got the solutions. We all know that we need to move away from plastic. We have incredible inventors out there from all different walks of life, whether they're research academics, government, smart people in governments in research roles there, or just some guy that's got an interest in in polymer chemistry for whatever reason. He's sat in his armchair on a Sunday afternoon and gone, hmm, you know what, I'll come up, yep, this is going to work, and dumps 20 grand into a, a pilot study of a new material and look, it, it actually does exactly what it promises. We have the solutions out there. We just don't have the momentum and the collective drive to get to where we need to be. Drawing everybody together from the individual actions to the collective so we can all move together on this one path to getting to where we need to be, making an impact not only for ourselves but for future generations so that those archaeologists don't get the chance <laughs> to dig that hole and say, what idiots. <laughs> Look, it sounds wonderful. My only concern is that it's, it's too potentially idealistic. And look, and I'm captain of the uh, idealistic dreamer society uh, of planet Earth, but uh, having worked in the environmental space for 20 plus years, like uh, expecting companies to do the right thing, I'd go as far as to say it's absolute delusion. Uh, like even companies who uh, they're in the business of protecting the environment without mentioning names, I see time and time again that they do the complete opposite of the right thing. They will cut corners. They will do the dodgy. They will greenwash. They will do whatever they can to keep on making as much money as they possibly can and to hell with the environment. And it crushes my heart to say that, but that for me is kind of the reality that we're in currently. I'm not saying it's not going to change, but and I'd love to see it change, um, but I'd love to see some big old sticks come out and beat a few people over the head that are that are basically making the problem worse than it really needs to be. And I look at the, the likes of the, the, to be honest, the petrochemical industries and companies. You know, they are absolutely in my crosshairs in relation to they should be doing something better than what they're currently doing. I, I, I find there's a lot of focus on trying to educate the uh, consumers. And I wouldn't say put the blame on consumers, but certainly reliant Relying very heavily on people on an individual basis is doing the right thing. And like you said, it's really hard. What do you think we could be doing potentially to the uh, plastic producers in particular? One of my biggest fears is the pace in which these tend to move. And we look at things like the Paris Agreement, other climate change instruments that have just dawdled along. There's been relatively no progress. There's been a lot of media, there's been a lot of sensational conversation, but ultimately, so slow. And the progress towards reaching where it needs to reach is just dismal. Right? I have the same concern around this plastic treaty and, and plastic pact and a few of the other intergovernmental conversations that are going on. Now, the other part of that is I have a concern that not all voices are heard or heard equally. That concerns me because that almost gets into a colonialism type of approach where 
the United Kingdoms, the USA's, the Australia's of the world get up there and grandstand and say, you must do this and you must do that. And that quite often doesn't translate to a solution or even remotely close to a direction of, say, a community in Africa or Central South America. It's so different environmentally, geopolitically, socially, that one size doesn't fit all. And when the voices aren't all heard equally, or there's not as a great balance given to the input from those parties, it does concern me because I just don't think that that will lead to it being as effective as it possibly could be. But that is the nature of those large intergovernmental approaches to managing these issues. And there's, of course, a place for that. We're almost in a, an ecosystem there of, of there being three tiers or four tiers to managing this. The first tier is ourselves. We can all do something, big, small, or, or otherwise. And we spoke about that. The second tier is what are governments and regulators doing to manage the problem in their own local area. So in Australia, of course, you've got local councils, you've got the state and territory governments, and you've got the federal government. Each can do something within their jurisdiction. And I look at Australia and I think, well, how slowly do we have to move on this matter amongst many other environmental matters before somebody really starts saying, well, hang on, let's get a move on here. Why is it taking so long? And I think there's a lot of drivers in each of the different levels of government, but nobody in any of those levels wants to be the person that really puts their neck out and says, right, we're going to make a big change. Credit where credit is due. At, at the moment, the current sitting federal government is having some really positive interactions and movement around plastic and, and, and waste and pollutants more generally, but maybe not enough and maybe not fast enough. We've seen years of inaction, basically, and that has, I think, led us to a point where many people have become complacent, many regulators have become complacent, and those operators that are out there to make a quick buck and are happy to go around the rules or, or, or do whatever has to be done to bolster the bank account at the end of the day have taken advantage of that. And so there needs to be tighter restrictions around the whole regulatory framework of plastic and waste in Australia. So that's one of the things. But then we have to go back up to what happens again at the international scale. And this is where there's an interplay between the tier two and the tier three levels of this problem. Australia's government could quite easily turn around to major producers and say, no, we're not importing a product anymore. We're not going to allow it, as they have done with an export ban on certain types of plastic material. Of course, there are the exemptions and there's, there's loopholes that will always get, people will always crawl through. But there could be an import ban and say, look, no more. We're not going to allow you to bring in products that are wrapped in single-use plastics, these particular types of chocolate bars, for example. They're no longer allowed to have those wrappers on them. No more. Done. As of 31st of December, if you bring that in, you either have to pay an enormous waste processing tax or you outright get fined for importing it. And of course, that's an extreme example, right? But those types of approaches can be significant deterrents to really drive change. When there is a motivation and when there's a need, a forced need for companies to change, 
they will change. If all the world was flowers and rainbows and goodwill, companies get on with it and do it. There's no impetus there at the moment, really, for companies to do that because they're competing in a market where the product that they have is, in often cases, subsidized through either the fossil fuel companies or other means. So why are they going to transition to something that is slightly more expensive and per unit cost is maybe half a cent more, but you multiply that out to scale and then all of a sudden they're they're concerned about their profit margin? Why are they going to do that? The reason at the moment they're not going to make a change is because they don't have to. There's nothing driving them to making that change. Fuel has an excise in Australia. Why don't other products derived from fossil fuels or, or oil and gas have an excise attached to those? Maybe they do, and I'm happy for happy to stand corrected. But so far as I know, we don't currently have that. And why not? Why is one product that is manufactured from a certain material taxed with an excise, and quite a high one at that, and others are not? Why is there an open door for one form of crushed up old dinosaurs and leaves and other debris in oil and gas forms that gets turned into plastic wrappers allowed through the door, but other material fuel for your vehicle gets taxed. It doesn't really make sense. What's the point then of the tax really is a, is the one question you could ask. What's what's it in, in place there for if it's not going to be taxed equally across the board? Look, there's a lot of interesting points there. From my perspective, what is extreme is continuing with the status quo and letting so much plastic leach or runoff into our waterways and oceans and ultimately us. That for me is the most extreme and diabolical scenario. So uh, change is our mandate. With that in mind, and, and you mentioned a few uh, templates around or, or examples around EVs, etc. Are you optimistic, Dr. Paul Harvey, that we can turn this ship around and solve the plastic pollution crisis in a readily, you know, quick enough time frame? I always like to be optimistic. <laughs> I think we all have to be. If we're not optimistic and we don't have something to strive for and to hope for the future then we'll find it very difficult to get out of bed Mm. each day and keep doing what we're doing. But I do actually see there being a transition fairly soon. I can't see, given what we know about plastic and the significant burden that it has, that the likes of Australia, the US, UK and and vast parts of Europe and some areas of Asia, uh, I can't see that there will be a continuation of using plastic in the same way that it has been done to date. The challenge is going to be those other developing markets where plastic is new or is still yet to arrive at scale. One of my fears is that if the well-developed markets turn off the purchasing power of plastic and say, no, we don't want this anymore, then those other developing markets are going to be swamped with the material. We are, to an extent, already seeing it with the sachets and the bottles, they're already starting to build momentum in those developing markets. And that's where I think, again, the power of the international conversations around this and the restrictions that can get placed around plastic and manufacturing and control of the flow of plastic material around the planet at the inter- intergovernmental level is so critical and so important. And that's why it needs to get needs to be done right. And it's important for all of those stakeholders to get it right. Because if there's even the tiniest little gap that 
can be taken advantage of. I guarantee you it will get taken advantage of. If we can get all of these things sorted out, then, you know, I, I kind of jokingly say to people, by the end of this decade, I'd like to walk into a supermarket and not see plastic on the shelf, unnecessary plastic on the shelf. And I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think it's too much to ask at all, Paul. And I've certainly asked a lot of your time today, so we probably need to land this plane at some time, but you've probably got a whole bunch of people even more excited about trying to solve the plastic pollution crisis. So I'd I'd certainly recommend, I'm holding in my little hand, I recognise I'm on a podcast and no one can see me except Paul, (laughs) The Plasticology Project book by Dr. Paul Harvey. Highly recommended reading. If people want to find out more or get in touch with you, Paul, I I guess their best way is just to jump on your website at uh, docpjharvey.com. As the one, or find me on LinkedIn. That's always another good spot to to grab me as well. Cool. We'll include all these uh, links in the show notes. But uh, just one final word, Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an enlightening chat. Again, I feel like it's been overdue, but it's been wonderful to uh, uh, connect today and uh, get insight into your perspectives. And I, for one, I hope that you keep on getting out of bed in the morning and uh, trying to help the world be a better place. So congratulations keep up the efforts and hopefully catch up in person sometime soon thanks brad it's been absolutely awesome chatting with you and yep we'll definitely uh catch up in person i look forward to it cool boom boom shake the room thanks for listening to the ocean protect podcast if you'd like to find out more about us and what we do check us out at oceanprotect.com.au